Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. Today we are speaking to Kevin Price, a former member of the political organization Black Radical Activist Group and apparently cult, now we're finding out, MOVE. Originally known as the Christian Movement for Life, this is a communal organization that was founded in Philly in the 70s, when, of course, there were a lot of communes and a lot of radical groups and a lot of black groups coming together. But at some point, the group kind of veered from from po- moved from politics to becoming a destructive cult under the leader John Africa. John, along with most of his uh, followers, died in a police firebombing in 1985. The group continued on, though. It's rebuilt itself, and now we're starting to see that it's maintained this destructive cult structure. You know, it trades on its reputation and the fact that it was part of this tragic conflagration to suck people in. One of the people who joined because of this rhetoric is Kevin Price. I'm not going to waste too much time going into his story because we have a long episode for you. And this is part one of two. But if you're interested in hearing about the group and this kind of alternative history of the group that most people don't know, most leftists don't know for sure, check out, there's a podcast called Murder at Ryan's Run, which is investigating an unsolved murder, which may have been a hit by Move itself. And also uh, check out this link in the show notes to a Philly Inquirer article about the group. It's been decades, but finally people are beginning to understand what's going on with Move, and I mean, it's a real shame. The group is a black eye to left groups, radical groups, but you know, these cults or these, uh, these destructive cults are chameleons. They can come across as any kind of organization, and the fact that this is a cult shouldn't reflect poorly on the left, it should reflect poorly on cults. So, um, I'm going to stop jabbering, and here is Kevin Price. Coming out of the fertile ground of the early 1970s of revolutionary groups that were kind of growing within the the fragmentation of groups like the Black Panther Party and the Weather Underground. And in West Philadelphia, uh, a neighborhood co- called Powelton Village, um, there were a lot of people who had been part of hippie movements and black liberation struggles and just generally people who were um, trying to find alternatives to, you know, typical mainstream American society. Um, and there was a, a man named Vincent Leapart who was a black man in his forties at the time um, who had lived in the neighborhood for some time and um, was known for kind of, walking a lot of wild stray dogs and spending a lot of time in Fairmount Park and, and, you know, kind of had his own philosophy and, and worldview. And he came together with a white college professor named Don Glassy 
and uh, Glassy was in his mid twenties, and uh, they they started getting together and writing what became known as the guidelines, which was and is moves scripture. Uh, essentially, they don't use that word, but it's their religious text, and it was and is basically a set of teachings about how all of mankind's problems come from civilization itself. So like if you're looking at Moves philosophy, um, it seems to be kind of like an anarcho-primitivist uh, philosophy that is arguing against all forms of civilization. Um, and then mixed in with that is a lot of religious thinking that, that, you know, kind of, it, it's not a Christian organization, but takes on a lot of Christian themes and motifs of like basically civilization being the fall of mankind. Um, this man, Vincent Leapart, as move was founded, took on the name John Africa. And um, as people started gathering around him and listening to him, his role within the group um, became more and more exalted until, you know, not, not that long after the group was founded, he was seen as essentially the perfect person. Um, the only person who was completely in touch with his instincts, who would lead humanity away from the pitfalls of civilization and back to a completely instinctual way of life. And inter intermixed with the kind of back to nature philosophy was a lot of the, you know, trappings of 1970s black radical politics Um Frank Rizzo's police force, uh, the, the police chief in Philadelphia at the time, and then later the mayor, was one of the most brutal in the country. And so the fact that um, MOVE being a predominantly black organization, though never exclusively a black organization, was um, constantly going head to head with the Philadelphia Police Department, only kind of further... Um, further entrench them in that identity as kind of like a, a 1970s black militant type group. But there was a, a unique uh, element of religiosity and like religious devotion to this man, John Africa. You know, that, that really seems, it's almost like a cliche, you know, I think there were a lot of white academics in the seventies that were looking for their own black radical to kind of, <laughs> work with or or glom onto you know academic leftists you know were very much looking for some kind of authenticity um and it just i'm really taken by the relationship between don glassy and vincent liebhart because it seems like such an odd marriage to begin with you know like white guy in his 20s from college professor you know black guy from the neighborhood or whatever um, what do you think their relationship was? How do you think they, you know, what brought them together and what, what do you think, obviously you weren't there, but do you have any sense of what led them to create this organization? Yeah. So I've thought about that a lot. And one thing that a lot of my understanding of, of move history, um, has changed considerably over the years because moves official history that they, they, they report of themselves is that um, John Africa, the, the Vincent Leapart who became John Africa, that he didn't have any influence from anyone else. They, the way that they frame their own story is that he always had these teachings and he always had this clear vision and there was no influence from anyone else whatsoever. Um, but, if you talk to people who were around back then, that just isn't the way that it happened. And so my, and I could be wrong about some of this, but based on, you know, people who knew Vincent Leapart before he became John Africa and people who knew Don Glassy and saw their relationship develop in, in 1970, 71, 72, um, it seems to me that Don Glassy was a 
very idealistic um, young radical and that he had a lot of ideas. He was very influenced by Thoreau and Emerson. And um, I think that Leapart genuinely had a lot of these ideas on his own. He, um, from what is reported, uh, struggled in school quite a bit, is reported to have had a very low IQ and serious learning disabilities. And I think felt very disaffected by the system, the educational system, the government, essentially, you know, all institutions. And, um, and I think that for Don Glassy, what he was saying and what he was thinking and his kind of Thoreauvian radicalism didn't have a lot of credibility coming from someone of his background. I think that all too often, and I know, you know, as as a like a young white guy coming into political movements, there's this tendency for white people to project all sorts of things onto black people in movements. And I think with Glassy, especially with Leapart being older, um, he not only projected a lot, but I think in some ways they were using one another. Um, I think that Glassy saw Leapart as a vehicle to get his experiment, you know, his kind of social experiment in starting this, this revolutionary organization that wasn't communist, that wasn't anarchist, that was, you know, doing something different. Um, and he saw Leapart as kind of this romantic, charismatic figure who could take what Glassy was saying and actually get people to listen. Um, and I think for Leapart, like my best guess is that, you know, he had been mistreated by a lot of people and he had been rejected from, you know, mainstream society and to have, all of these people in their early 20s, late teens start to look to him. There was there was just a lot of needs being met for Glassy and Leapart based on this kind of convenient relationship that they formed. You know, there must have been something there like Leapart, a.k.a. John Africa. You know, he um, for him to go and then, you know, attract Don Glassy. And then to become the leader of this movement, he must have had some kind of like charisma or emotional intelligence. You know, he was he was illiterate, functionally illiterate, but, you know, he apparently made up for it in other ways. What do you understand about, you know, his personality and how it went to, you know, because when he was a dog walker, it didn't seem like he would be a I'm sure nobody would have thought he would become a cult leader. <laughs> But, right. you know, the ending, his ending is obviously that of a cult leader. Yes. So, and this is the thing. It's like looking back on who he was based on, you know, reports. Obviously, I, I, I never met him because he, you know, the, the Osage Avenue, the bombing happened when I was a toddler and, and he was killed in, in that uh, move bombing in 1985. But um, I don't, I in some ways, I don't think he would have become a cult leader had it not been for his relationship with Glassy. I think they kind of co-created one another. Um, and I've talked to early move members who laughed when things started to to take an obvious turn. You know, there were a lot of people who um, were attracted to move in 1972, 73, 74, 75. But then when MOVE started publicly taking up arms and it it, it, it shifted, um, they got out. And some of those people still will say, you know, Leapart just had this charisma. He had this, there was a feeling of sitting in the room with him, even if he wasn't talking, where you just wanted to sit near him. And, you know, I have encountered people like that and it's, there are even some people who are blood related to him who are still in move who I've felt that quality from. And it's like, you can't quite put your finger on what's happening, but there's a charisma there that, that 
they aren't doing anything. It's just kind of this magnetic pull that they, it's part of their essence. And I think also with Leapheart, with the, the man who became John Africa, um, you know, some have surmised that he may have been schizophrenic and some people who knew him have, have said that um, based on the, the way that his perceptions of reality would shift and the, the kind of different personas he would take on. Um, and I have been, I have a, a family member. I have one of my aunts is schizophrenic and there are times that I've spent around her where her level of insight is beyond most people, but it's not reliable. And sometimes it goes way off the rails, but other times she can, um, there's just something where you feel like she's aware of something that you're not, you know? And with Leapheart, though I believe he, he became responsible for some horrendous things and, um, and the way that move developed became completely destructive. Um, I do think that he had some, insights that were very profound, especially to the people who were directly in his presence. Um, and it's possible that without becoming a cult leader, without having all these people follow him, that may have just continued for the rest of his life. And he could have been kind of an eccentric person in the neighborhood. The other thing is like, they talk about, Leapheart being illiterate and uneducated and all of these things. But at the same time, he reportedly, and this isn't just from MOVE members, but from other people who lived in the neighborhood at the time, was a phenomenal carpenter and could could make intricate things with hand tools without using power tools and had an attention for detail and apparently was fairly musically adept. And um, so though it seems he was illiterate and whenever he, you know, took these tests when he was in school was, you know, not functioning at a high level at all. And, and at the time, the word they would have used would have likely been retarded for how low he scored on the IQ scale. There was definitely a, something else happening below the surface with them, with him, um, where I think, you know, he did have some some qualities that were very attractive to people. So this movement, I guess, uh, 1972, right around there, is when the initial group started. And then take us forward a few years. By, like, mid-70s, maybe, like, before the shootout in 78, what did the MOVE organization kind of settle upon as... Sure. So... In the earlier years, the the focus seemed to be actually living what Move preached, which what Move was preaching was essentially rejecting not just modern conveniences, but rejecting like civilization itself, but with the strange twist that you were doing this in the city, right? So they're staying in West Philadelphia. Um, the the Palton Village headquarters at 33rd and Palton, this large house that had like 30 some move members living in it with dogs. They cut off the electricity at various points. They didn't have running water. Um, you know, the kids aren't really wearing clothes. They're they're stripping everything away. And it seems at that time they actually were living by those ideals for better or for worse because the conditions for the kids were abhorrent and you know that's a whole other issue but um by 75 76 uh things started to become more externally focused in that uh move was regularly protesting just about everything um so the early move protests were actually targeted way more to the political left than they were anything else um and pretty much any other competing 
alternate spirituality that 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 came through town too so like early move protests were dick gregory um you know former members of the black panther party alan watts came through town they protested against alan watts russell means Dennis Banks, like all of these people that many people who support Move also look to as sources of inspiration, Move was essentially arguing we are the only group. John Africa is the only person who has the solution to humanity's problems. And even if you think you're close to us, if you're not us, you're just going to lead people back into the traps of civilization. So Anything that is not the teachings of John Africa needs to be exposed. And like essentially when they protested Alan Watts, they basically wanted Alan Watts to say, I'm not going to speak anymore because John Africa has the answers to all the problems, right? They protested Buckminster Fuller. Um, a lot of the early protests were at the school board, um, which makes sense. Like, like from our perspective now, Certainly, like, you know, what was being taught in the schools as far as U.S. history and, and all of that deserved a great deal of protest. But their protests were going so far beyond that kind of critique and were extending to, like, you know, um, you are teaching people that civilization is good. It wasn't just about, like, the school systems are teaching white supremacist history. It was, like, teaching anything at all like if you actually look at what move believes they're against literacy they're against words they're against language and so um i think a lot of people misunderstood what move was because the trappings of a predominantly black organization holding protest signs looking militant looked like something people thought they understood but if you actually looked at what move was saying their critique wasn't of capitalism. Their critique was so deep that it was a, essentially like Move believes that mankind's first violation is harnessing fire to cook food. So their critique takes you back about 100 million years, right? So like, or I'm not 100, uh, about a million years, I'm sorry. Um, and so... Those were the protests happening around 75. What happened to Donald Glassy? Is he still around at this point? Okay, so Glassy is still around around 75, 76. Um, Glassy and a lot of other people start to rethink things right around 76, 77. So the move mythology is you know that the history is told by move is that as soon as move started going out there protesting you know rizzo's police force was brutally attacking them um rizzo's police force was certainly brutal and i am in no way saying that the philadelphia police were a benevolent force they absolutely weren't um but Move's early demonstrations didn't really seem to attract all that much interest from the philadelphia police um which wasn't good for move in the beginning, the, the Philadelphia police seemed kind of confused by move and they, at the, what is now called civil affairs in Philly is like the, the unit of the police that deal with trying to keep altercations between, you know, uh, protest organizations and the police to a minimum at the time that unit of the police called, was called civil disobedience. And, um, they really functioned as like a, a, a cushion between the main part of Rizzo's police force and move. And like they, they kind of left move alone in the beginning and that didn't work out well because part of move strategy was to go head to head with the police and with the system in a visible way in order to kind of make their point. And so both, both sides continued to escalate um, a, a pivotal event in Move's history was the uh, the death of Life Africa, which I believe was in 1976. Um, and from Move's way of telling the story, um, you know, Move members were regularly getting arrested at 
demonstrations at that point intentionally like that people would go to demonstrations with the goal of the majority of the organization getting arrested they had a strategy strategy to go into the courts and try and clog up the court system with so many move cases that the court system couldn't function um and so there would be move cases every single day move members would represent themselves challenge every single thing uh, in order to make the trials last as long as possible. And they were, they were, it was political theater and it was kind of brilliant because it got them a ton of attention and also served the purpose of tying up the courts to the degree that they couldn't, that eventually authorities got so frustrated with move, they, they kind of just wanted to leave them alone. Um, but in 76, a bunch of move members are getting released late at night. The move story is that Janine Africa had a baby who was a few weeks old uh, and that she is standing out in front of move headquarters at 33rd and Palatin, that they're celebrating as these move members come home from jail and that the police come out using the excuse of a noise complaint and beat the move members who came home from jail and in the process beat Janine and that she dropped her baby and that the police stomped on the baby. And that is absolutely horrific. Um, the, the issue here is that a couple of move members who left in the early 80s, including uh, Valerie Brown, who left uh, from the Osage Avenue house, said that that wasn't what happened at all and that the death of life Africa was actually part of John Africa's strategy in order to escalate tensions with the police and that the baby had actually died from some other cause independent um, based on the conditions that the children were living in. It Honestly, it could have been malnutrition. It could have been any number of things. And again, I don't know this for a fact. I just know that members who have left who were there at the time have said that Move's version of events is not true. But anyway, that that, that event was used by Move in order to uh, justify increasing militancy towards the Philadelphia Police Department. And on May 20th of 1977, Move took a stand against Rizzo's police force um, by building a platform in front of the 33rd and Powelton headquarters and going out on the platform wearing matching jumpsuits and uh, holding rifles and having holstered revolvers, which they were actually within their constitutional right to do with on their own property. But then uh, members left the platform and started walking around the block, which is actually what initiated the charges that were filed against them. But the May 20, 20th of 77 event, it was polarizing because they were essentially saying like, look, if you think you're just going to beat move members, you know, in hiding without anyone seeing it, if you think you're just going to kill our children, um, we are going to make this public and we're going to make it so that you can't do those things behind closed doors. And by setting up this platform, we're going to ensure that the media is here. We're going to ensure that people pay attention to us. Um, and that worked very well. And a lot of the supporters who came around in the late seventies came because of how powerful a stand that was, especially for a predominantly black group to like, assert their right to self-defense so strongly and politically like if i didn't know what move is and if i didn't know how move functions as a cult from personal experience i would say like yeah that that makes sense like rizzo's police force was brutal and um i can understand the the need to like to to assert the right to defend yourself um but with move things are never that simple um, but anyway, that was about the time that people like Don Glassy started to uh, question what was happening. Um, if you look at 
the federal trial against Vincent Leapart uh, that happened in 1981 and the testimony of a lot of people who left, it looks like at that time, uh, beginning in about 76, uh, move members under the leadership of John Africa are starting to learn how to manufacture bombs and are collecting large amounts of weapons and are hiding them various places. And for all of moves talk about their guns only being for self-defense. Um, there's a lot to support the idea that, that move was actually planning a number of terrorist attacks in order to, uh, I mean, it, it sounds insane because it is, but, um, Essentially, they were developing a plan to uh, try and bring down civilization, essentially, by uh, having targeted attacks internationally. I mean, the group was never strong enough to actually fulfill any of those dreams of John Africa. But if you look at the, the federal trial and evidence that was presented, it looks like that was what was actually happening. So... Glassy at that point, as well as a number of other members, a guy named William Whitney Smith, um, who ends up dead under suspicious conditions after he decides he's going to testify against the group. Um, Glassy and a few others start giving testimony to the feds uh, because even though they were part of starting all this, Glassy specifically once they see the direction it's turning, they, they decide that they need to do what they can to stop it. You know, that's really very much of the time. Like, I think about the SLA and Patty Hearst. Actually, you know, some real parallels there as far as some real differences. But, you know, it started out in prison. The uh, the leader, Sinkyu, I can't think of what his real name is. Yeah. You, you know, he was he was a prisoner in Vacaville like the hole, the deepest hole in the California penal system. And he was kind of adopted by these white radicals that were coming into, you know, volunteering in the prison. They got together and you had this combination of academic radicals and street people, you know, people who are from the streets. And then the thought goes to revolution and the revolution from any objective standpoint doesn't make any sense and it's not realistic. Right. You know, people don't, realize that you're talking the early to mid 70s things were blowing up all the time you know? yes it was just like you know you, you see one guy with with a bomb parked outside of the capital or whatever in washington dc today just threatening to blow it up and you know the whole world freaks out rightfully so but people were actually going around blowing shit up all the time yep in the 70s so, yes, I mean, it was a crazy time and, it, you know, the move obviously fits right into that movement. You know, it's interesting because it really is a time capsule, the story in this group. Who who were the move nine? After the 77, um, what what move came to refer to as the guns on the porch day, May 20th of 77, um, there were charges filed based on the fact that members got off of the platform and, and walked off of their own property with the guns. Um, and there were a number of other charges too, uh, related to the stuff I was talking about with what turned into a federal trial. So about half of the organization, um, fled to Rochester, New York and went underground around that time, not 77, but like early 78, including Vincent Leapart, the man, you know, known as John Africa. Um, the, the, the members who were left in Philly were still at the Pelton village headquarters. And while the one half of the organization was underground up in Rochester, they are still, you know, continuing demonstrations and, you know, all of the, the stuff in Philly and, you know, Rizzo, Frank Rizzo's police force at the time saw Moves' existence as as kind of uh, an embarrassment of law and order. Right, Move was so good at um, kind of just 
like waving a red flag in front of a bull with Rizzo. And they, in some ways, I think Rizzo was the best thing that could have happened for move, you know, from, from moves perspective, because he was such a blowhard racist, you know, like he was, he was the Trump of Philly, but, but like Trump on steroids. Right. And, um, so, he wants to take move down and also there are serious concerns with what's happening at the headquarters. Now move always frames it as they tried to come into our house for L and I for license and inspection violations, which is essentially what was happening. But the conditions within the Palatine village headquarters were like so bad that, you know, there are kids in the house with a lot of rats, dozens of stray dogs that they've taken in, and neighbors are legitimately complaining all the time. Smells coming from the house, noise coming from the house. Um, and so Rizzo essentially is using the LNI stuff as, as a reason to go into the house, to get move out of the house um, at a certain point, And there are other charges as well, but at a certain point Rizzo calls for a barricade to be put around, not just move headquarters, but like that part of the Palatine village neighborhood to the degree that the neighbors would have to show ID to get back onto their street. Um, and he was trying to starve move out. I mean, it's like the way that the authorities dealt with move was so wrong headed and so clueless as to how they were empowering them through taking this approach. And it dealing with a group like move is nearly impossible, but you know, the, the, it just kind of fed them. Um, so that's going on. Move is refusing to leave. They're trying to negotiate all these deals. The city is offering uh, that if Move leaves the house, they will give them property out in rural Pennsylvania, or people are offering them property in New Jersey. And you know, Move is saying no. This is this is our home. This is where we're going to stay. At a certain point, it looks like they've worked a deal out. It's hard to say exactly what went on there. Um, but on August 8th, 1978, uh, 600 police are sent to move headquarters to serve these warrants. Um, and move has been on the platform on the bullhorn for months saying, if you come at us with guns, we'll come back with guns. If you come at us with clubs, we'll come back with clubs. We're going to defend ourselves. We're not leaving our house. And there's this, this standoff. And so the police, there's tension. The police are surrounding the house. A shot rings out. And, you know, some people think that the first shot came from across the street. The police claimed it came from MOVE headquarters. Either way, as soon as that first shot rings out, police are firing in. Like, you know, just, just shooting into the basement and move members who claim that they never fired a shot that day are obviously firing out of the basement. Um, a police officer named James Ramp is killed along with either four or five other police officers and firefighters who are not killed but are hit with bullets. Uh, the important thing there is that Move's claim has always been that they were uh, imprisoned for the murder of police officer James Ramp which is only partially true. And they, they, they will say, you know, nine people were convicted of, of one murder and sent to prison for all this time. But in actuality, they were, I, I believe the hit for the murder of James Ramp was only maybe 10 to 20 years. And then they had accounts of attempted murder for each of the police officers and firefighters that were hit. Moves contention has always been that it was friendly fire that killed Ramp, but with five or six, uh, people being hit, that definitely doesn't seem possible. And that also, um, consistent with the rest of move history, was was a fabrication of um, essentially confusing documents that were released about the ballistics and, and making a case that 
that ramp was shot from behind when, when to my knowledge, that actually doesn't seem true. Um, I say all of that still not excusing the way that the police handled the situation, which was abhorrent, but um, nonetheless, uh, nine people were put on trial together, which move also will cite as an example of injustice, but that was actually at their own request. They said, we want to be treated as a family. We're going to go on trial together. Um, People who did not claim move membership, some were not put on trial, even though they were in the basement. Uh, And then Consuela Africa, legally, her case was separated out, but she was also put on trial. And the move members uh, of the group that became called the Move Nine actually requested a bench trial, which should tell you quite a bit because it's obvious, especially with the political climate at the time, that if you request a bench trial, meaning you're only seeking judgment of the judge, you're waiving your right to a jury, um, that with a bench trial and the feelings of the judicial system about move, that your chances of being found innocent are essentially none. And your, your chances of being given any leniency on sentencing are essentially none. So it's my belief as well as a lot of other people who spent a lot of time around move that the whole point of the August 8th standoff was to get people sent to prison for a long time so that move had martyrs in prison and that they could also become a force within the prison system. So Based on their strategy in court, they all get 30 to 100 year sentences. And um, Merle Africa passed away in prison in 98. Phil Africa passed away in prison uh, five or six years ago. But all of the rest of them ended up serving uh, 40 years. Debbie Africa was the first to get out. She did just under 40 and all of the remaining of the Move 9 got out sometime shortly after serving 40 years in prison. Uh, and that was just uh, within the last two and a half years that they started, three years that they started coming home from prison. Your take on this and your your perspective on the possibility that the standoff and the trial was kind of a show trial that was engineered by John Africa a little bit, does that come from talking to ex-members or move members or is that kind of like based on your understanding of how it operates or how did you kind of come to that conclusion so it comes from talking to some of the second generation members whose parents were in prison um uh wit sims is in and we'll get to talking about this in the in a bit but she's one of the move members who publicly left move um just this past uh july of 2021 and um both of her parents served 40 years uh her parents are mike and and debbie uh of the move nine mike and debbie africa um that's her contention as well um it also comes from a lot of the the documents from back then um i i've read some of the strategy uh, documents about kind of what what move was planning to do and how they planned to expose the system that the thing that's tricky about move is that a lot is insinuated and not much is spelled out so there's plausible deniability but it, that fits within what the strategy was which was essentially to try and force the system to um put themselves in a situation where the world could see the worst elements of the system. And I, I think that the August 8th confrontation was kind of engineered um, so that there would be move members serving long terms in prison so that they would have the opportunity to uh, preach in the prison system, recruit people in the prison system, and also have a cause to rally around. Um, you know, I don't know that for a fact, but there's really no logical reason why anyone who didn't, who anyone who was trying to get the shortest sentence possible would elect to not have a jury, right? Like, 
Move had been at war with judges. And I mean, like for five years at that point, targeting judges, going into their neighborhoods, threatening judges, like sending letters and threatening the children of judges. And all this is part of the, the historical record. And so there was a hatred of Move. I mean, John Africa wrote a document called The Judge's Letter, which essentially argues that that judges are at the root of all evil of the system because they think that their judgment is superior to God's. And it was essentially a theological argument about um, what is wrong with, with that kind of um, legal worldview and judges being the worst representation of that. And so I just can't see now these are not stupid people by any means. Like, there are some very, very smart people in MOVE. And I think that that John Africa's strategy in a lot of ways, it, it doesn't make sense to me now, but there was an internal logic to it that was very consistent. And if the you kind of look at like, okay, what happened? And then back engineer it to be like, okay, so what was the goal here? Most of the time, it seems that MOVE was fulfilling their goals. Is Mumia Abu Jamal part of the organization or parallel <laughs> to the organization? Or is that something yeah. that Move kind of glommed onto later? It gets complicated. Um, it gets really complicated. So Mumia, I, it's like, in some ways, it's weird for me, the position I'm in now being, you know, part of, you know, a lot of us are kind of serving this whistleblower kind of function um, who were either born and move or like myself, like was a really close supporter. And it's it's tricky because like I still have a lot of love for even even people who have been involved in stuff that now really upsets me and disappoints me and makes me angry towards them. But I still have love for a lot of these people and Mumia, I wouldn't put in the category of someone who, you know, upsets me or, or necessarily any of that, but like it is kind of, I do feel weird in some ways even talking about him because I do care about him and I still hope that he gets out of prison, but nonetheless, like, my understanding of Mumia and all of this is, you know, most people know he was a, a, a Black Panther as a teenager. Um, he was a, a reputable journalist within Philadelphia in the mid 70s. At the time, you know, Mumia was uh, he was born in 54. So he encounters move sometime around, I don't know, 74, something like that. Um, so he's like you know, in his early twenties when he first encounters move, maybe 75. And I've talked to him about it. I used to, to visit with Mumia frequently in prison. And he said at first he was very alienated by moves presentation because it was so different than like a group like the Panthers that had like a, a very specific intellectual background. Um, but he was taken in by the, the spirituality, by the, kind of dedication and, and loyalty of the people. And I think Mumia had a very romantic idea of what move was. Um, he also described the death of life Africa at the way that move tells the story at the hands of the police as the turning point when he switched from being somewhat skeptical to being full fledged, like onboard supporter. And that's the child that, um, that Pat, that died that Mumi or move blames the police for the death, but we're not sure that that actually what happened. Exactly. And, um, so Mumia gets closer and closer, uh, to move and is spending more and more time around them at the time, you know, he's a radio journalist, he's writing for some papers and he's well known and, and respected. But as you read the stuff he was writing, Around 78, when the Move 9 go to jail, like his journalism flips into full on just essentially like Move propaganda, the stuff that he's writing about Move. And it's obvious if you read what he was writing at the time that he's like starting to believe as Move believes. Um, so 
officially he's never been called a move member, but he was close to move even before he was arrested. And then when he's arrested after, you know, December 9th of 1981, when he's shot and officer Daniel Faulkner is killed, uh, John Africa sent Pam Africa and some other move members to the hospital that night and the 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 move cause to get mumia free started then they were the first people there in the hospital with him after he was shot and so that goes back all the way to the beginning of mumia's incarceration um mumia is probably more responsible for attracting support to move than anyone else because his writing is so compelling and especially like for me it was his writing about move in death blossoms and live from death row that that totally his books that came out in the mid to late 90s um that totally pulled me in and so mumia his version of move is his version of move but his version of move is the version of move that a lot of us fall in love with right and then once we encounter the real move like you know you've you've so been taken in by the romantic idea of move that i think is legitimately what he believed move was you know um but he's he served a very important role for the organization because he's responsible for attracting the majority of the support 1985 that's so many of our so many people's first encounter with move is the the firebombing um is that was that your first I mean, you were a toddler or something, right? But I actually didn't hear of Move at all until I was about 13, which was in 1996. And that was just as I was getting into punk rock and like learning, you know, starting to read Howard Zinn and learning about, you know, history that's often left out of history classes. And I, I think I started reading Mumia when I was just turning 14 and that's when I really started to get taken in. Like I would hear little bits here and there. Cause you know, at, at punk rock shows, people have flyers about all sorts of stuff. So I encountered move at about that point. Um, yeah. So 1985 is so important in move history for a number of reasons. Um, if I can back up just for a minute, because there's a really important event that most people don't know about, even if they know about the 1978 confrontation and the 1985 confrontation, that I think is uh, partially responsible for the turn that MOVE took that led to the 1985 confrontation. And that was what I've referenced before, which was the 1981 federal trial of John Africa. Um, and so while the Powelton village confrontation was happening in 1978, about half of move was underground in Rochester, New York. And, uh, in 19 could have been 80 when the arrests were made. I, I could be off on a date here, but, um, the Rochester chapter, the underground chapter is raided and arrested uh, sometime, I believe, in 1980. John Africa is one of the ones arrested, as well as quite a few other people, many of whom had charges stemming from the guns on the porch day. However, John Africa went on trial with Mo Africa, who was one of the original members, and they were charged with a lot of the things that Don Glassy, when he left, testified about, um, things that that guy that I referenced, William Whitney Smith, would have testified about had he not died soon before under suspicious circumstances. Um, there were a number of former members who were testifying about this terrorism and conspiracy to plant bombs all over the world. Uh, there were a number of bombs and many, many guns that were uh, confiscated that were in the possession of move members at the direction of John Africa. And there was a federal trial that if 
John Africa would have been convicted. He would have been in prison for the rest of his life. He beat the federal charges, and this was a huge case, and it was a case that the feds had put an immense amount of time into, and it was a huge blow to the FBI. And essentially, he beat the case. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what happened there, but his strategy was he takes the stand um, after the jury has heard an incredible amount of evidence against him. Testimony from former MOVE members. There would have been significantly more testimony had this man, William Whitney Smith, not not died under su- suspicious circumstances. But nonetheless, if you look at the evidence that was presented, if you read the trial transcripts, it's mind-boggling that they were able to beat these charges. So John Africa, after sleeping through the majority of the trial or appearing to gets up and gives this eloquent heartfelt people who reported on it said there were tears in his eyes as he gave the closing statement. And he's not refuting anything that the, that the prosecution has put forward. Instead, he's saying my belief speaks for itself. I believe in life. I believe that, Living things are more valuable than property, right? I believe that what mankind is doing to the earth is going to destroy the earth unless people change their ways. And he's making arguments that are sound and logical about how destructive human civilization can be. Um, And he's tapping into the the hearts and minds of the jury talking about his love for animals and how much it hurts him to see, you know, species going extinct and all of these things. And he ends the closing statement and the jury returns rather quickly and finds John Africa and Mo Africa innocent on all counts. And so when he leaves the court that day, he's just, beat a federal case that they've spent years, I mean, millions of dollars likely, um, trying to build this case against him. And here he is, you know, a man with almost no formal education that they say is illiterate, um, who, if that is actually the way that he won that trial, if it wasn't through some sort of jury tampering or intimidation or something like that, He's just out, outsmarted, you know, some of the smartest federal agents. And you can understand why he would feel unstoppable at that point. Um, his, his strategy was so impressive to Mumia Abu-Jamal, who reported on the entire trial and was there in court, that when Mumia uh, is on trial less than a year or, you know, is in court less than a year later for the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Um, Mumia is asking for John Africa to represent him, right? So even though John Africa wasn't an attorney, Mumia is asking for him as his counsel. So you can only imagine it, how powerful seeing him win that for a move supporter or a move member was move members loyalty towards him i'm sure increased because if they had any doubt about his power and his strategy at that point a lot of that would have been put to rest and essentially at that period in rochester it started but in osage it really intensifies that's like the time when he's giving his inner circle members like the secret teachings right that's when the 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 cult aspects of move that have always been there become much more obvious. That's when, you know, the, the control and abuse of, of children becomes more clear to people on the outside. Um, and this just continues to spiral. So there's four years between him being found innocent in, in federal court in Philadelphia and, every move member in the Osage 
Avenue House other than Ramona and, and Bertie Africa dying in the, the fire that resulted from the bombing. And there's there's definitely a d- direct connection between those those events.